So last week, at the end, I had a few people, and you know who you are, uh, don't get embarrassed, I won't name names, come up to me and tell me, I wasn't sure how this was going to work, I didn't know how Micah would preach, or uh, something to that effect. And I wanted just to clarify why I chose Micah for us, because I believe that this is the, the place the Lord has brought us, especially this summer. And there's, there's really three reasons. One is to introduce you to a new book. If you haven't read it before, Micah might be obscure enough to be glanced over. Right, so we get to study in depth a portion of God's word you might not be familiar with. Second, and this goes along with the third, it's really a great partner to the book of Matthew because in Matthew, Jesus is God. Right? We are presented with Jesus the King, Jesus God. And in Micah, we get to know who God is really well. We are exposed to certain characteristics or aspects of God that we wouldn't necessarily be exposed to if we didn't go there, if we didn't go especially to the minor prophets, that God is both merciful and just, that he is holy and loving. And Micah presents that to us really well. So as we try to understand who Christ is in the Gospel of Matthew, and for those who aren't aware, that's where we've been spending most of our time. As we try to get to understand who Jesus is as God in Matthew, it's good to know who God is in the Old Testament. Amen? So last week, we dove into the historical background of the book and why Micah was delivering these prophecies. You'll remember that Micah is a prophet in the southern kingdom of Judah in the closing years of the 8th century before Christ, during the era of the divided kingdom of Israel. And in chapter 1, Micah pronounces judgment against the northern kingdom, or Israel, that's also its name, the kingdom of Israel, because of its idolatry. The northern kingdom of Israel had abandoned the covenant God had made with them in order to serve other gods, and so God is bringing judgment against them. Shortly, during Micah's life, they will be judged. They will be deported and lose their land. But Micah is a prophet of the southern kingdom, southern kingdom of Judah. And he tells us in chapter 1 that the southern kingdom would also face judgment. They'd also face it for idolatry. He focused in on governments. The governments and leaders of both kingdoms were placed under indictment by the Lord who is a witness against their crimes and the judge who will pass sentence. So in light of this potential judgment, especially in the southern kingdom, Micah calls Judah, the southern kingdom, to lamentation and repentance. So in chapter 2, he gets more specific. He gets really specific with certain crimes that the nation has committed. So let's stand together. And read all of Micah chapter 2. And like last week, feel free to sit back down. If if you can't handle that length, it's totally fine. You're not offending anybody. Micah chapter 2 in its entirety. This is the word of the Lord. Woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil on their beds. When the morning dawns, they perform it because it is in the power of their hand. They covet fields and seize them and houses and take them away. They oppress a man in his house, a man in his inheritance. Therefore, thus says the Lord, behold, against this family, I'm devising disaster from which you cannot remove your necks and you shall not walk haughtily for it will be a time of disaster. 
In that day, they shall take up a taunt song against you and moan bitterly and say, we are utterly ruined. He changed the portion of my people, how he removes it from me. To an apostate, he allots our fields. And therefore, you will have none to cast the line by lot in the assembly of the Lord. Do not preach, thus they preach. One should not preach of such things. Disgrace will not overtake us. Should this be said, O house of Jacob, has the Lord grown impatient? Are these his deeds? Do not my words do good to him who walks uprightly? But lately, my people have risen up as an enemy. You strip the rich robe from those who pass by with no thought of war. The women of my people you drive out from their delightful houses. From their young children you take away my splendor forever. Arise and go. For this is no place to rest, because of uncleanness that destroys with a grievous destruction. If a man should go about and utter wind and lies, saying, I will preach to you of wine and strong drink, he would be the preacher for this people. I will surely assemble all of you, Jacob. I will gather the remnant of Israel. I will set them together like sheep in a fold, like a flock in its pasture, a noisy multitude of men. He who opens the breach goes up before them. They break through and pass the gate, going out by it. Their king passes on before them, the Lord at their head. Please be seated while we pray. Lord, we come before you and we thank you so much for your word. And that we get to come to it day by day and week by week here together. We pray now that we would align our lives to it, that we would mold our souls to it, Lord, that you would make us look more like Christ because of it. In Jesus' name, amen. The book of Micah is set up in certain cycles. It's not a very long book. It's only seven chapters, but there's cycles in it. A judgment is pronounced for a long time, followed by a short section of hope and a reminder of God's promises. The only exception is right in the middle of the book where there's a lot more hope found. Chapter two is the back end of the first cycle. So chapter one introduced us to the judgment of Israel and Judah in very general terms. But chapter two gets a lot more specific and it ends in a few verses that give hope. Micah brings more direct charges against the two groups, against two specific groups of people in the southern kingdom. So first and primary, and they exist in the whole passage, there's judgment pronounced against this group the whole time, is the ruling class in Judah, the rich class. They're oppressing the poor. Second, and only after a little bit, are false prophets that Micah denounces. False prophets who are in the pocket of that ruling class. And that ruling class is telling them things, or the the prophets are telling that class the things that they want to hear instead of God's word. So let's look at some of these crimes that Micah outlines for us. First is the crime of covetousness. Micah starts off with a statement of woe. Woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil on their beds. When the morning dawns, they perform it because it is in the power of their hand. On first reading, this word woe sounds like a pronouncement of judgment. Like when Jesus pronounces certain woes against the Pharisees in the Gospel of Luke, right? You'll be familiar with that. And in a certain sense, that is what's happening here. 
This is judgment that he's pronouncing. But the word that Micah uses is more like our English word, our old English word, alas. It's a word that clearly states something emotional, right? You say alas, you're grieving about something. And in this case, it's a word that you would say when you're confronted with somebody dying. Alas, or woe. So it's less woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, and more like woe is me. Okay, it's actually that a word you'd use at like a funeral. And, and of course, that imagery carries over from chapter one, verse eight, where Micah is pictured as a mourner over the death of the northern kingdom. The people of Micah, uh, the people that Micah pronounce, pronounces this over, in his estimation, are already dead. So the words that he's about to say to the southern kingdom are strong words to dead people. Their judgment is sure. Their hope is lost. The woe is against those who sit up late at night devising evil that they perform first thing in the morning. Micah says that they do this because it is in the power of their hands. They do the evil things that they plan because it is in their power to do so and no one can stop them. They covet fields and seize them and houses and take them away. They oppress a man and his house, a man and his inheritance. So now we get a clearer picture of what these wicked people are actually doing. These are those who have the power to take away land from someone just because they want it. So let's think that through a little bit and try to understand what kind of people Micah is speaking against. He explicitly states that these people have a lot of power. Just the ability, the, the, the mere ability to take something that doesn't belong to them without consequence. At that time in the southern kingdom, there was a booming economy, but only for a very few. There were those who were getting really wealthy through a lot of corruption. Micah has in mind unjust land barons who steal and defraud the poor from their land making those who once lived on their land, their property, no better than slaves and serfs. So one thing we have to understand about Israel at this time was that the land wasn't just property. We have to understand. It's different than how we are today. Now, if somebody took your home that you owned, you'd be pretty upset, especially if they made you stay there and pay rent, right? That, that wouldn't go over well. But for them, land... Uh, was sacred. Land that belonged to your clan or to your family was sacred. God gave the land of Israel, the actual land, as a gift to that nation. It's their inheritance. Every family of Israel received allotments of land, whether through their tribe or clan or immediate family. So to take away a family's land was in a very literal sense to take away the inheritance they'd received from the Lord. It's a very wicked thing to do. But these oppressive land barons thought very little of it. The ESV says that these individuals oppress a man in his house. The NIV says they defraud people and both capture the idea. The land barons were, were not treating the normal people of Israel in the way that the scriptures told them to care for their brothers and sisters. They were stealing from them. 
extorting them, using unjust scales in the marketplace, and even taking land by force. And because the situation in Jerusalem was that of corruption, it's not very speculative to think that they took land from the vulnerable by manipulating the the legal system and through mob-like activity. We're talking about gangsters here. The picture that Micah paints for us of these guys is not very good. Leviticus 19.13 says, in no uncertain terms, you shall not oppress your neighbor or rob them. But that's exactly what these people are doing. They're not loving their neighbors as themselves. They're walking over the vulnerable and the poor and taking what does not belong to them. So a great example of this happening is recorded in 1 Kings 21, where the evil king Ahab wants to take a man's vineyard to use as a garden. Naboth was the man's name. And when Ahab asked him to give him the vineyard, Naboth replied, the Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. The Lord forbid. Naboth understood that the promised land that he received was an inheritance that God gifted to his family. And to give even the king that land would be to reject God's gift. That it would take away the inheritance of his children. And so Ahab, being a very evil king, took the land anyway. He set up false witnesses against Naboth using the legal system corruptly, and they charged him with apostasy and treason, and they had him stoned to death. Then Ahab took the land. If you want to know what happens next, you have to read 1 Kings 21. That's the kind of thing that's happening in Judah. It's not good. Vulnerable, defenseless people were having their inheritance from the Lord stolen by these oppressive land barons by any means possible. And so these landowners were setting up little kingdoms, little monarchies throughout Israel, making their fellow Israelites slaves, setting up this interesting feudal system. And so God's judgment was both swift and retributive. Look at verse 3 again. Therefore, thus says the Lord, behold, against this family I'm devising disaster from which you cannot remove your necks, and you shall not walk haughtily, for it will be a time of disaster. The family in question is Israel. Because of the top-down oppression in that nation, God is going to bring swift judgment on the north and the south. And it's not avoidable judgment. Their necks will not be removed from the noose. The disaster will bring shame. The oppressors were prideful and eager to commit evil, but soon their pride will become humility. And a time of disaster will visit them. Listen to Micah's taunt song. In that day, they shall take up a taunt song against you and moan bitterly and say, we are utterly ruined. He changes the portion of my people, how he removes it from me. To an apostate, he allots our fields. That's a mocking song that Micah is saying people will sing against them. It could even be the poor Israelite who had his land stolen, who mocks the wicked land barons with this song. In the end... 
It'll be wealthy families who are deported and taken to Babylon from the land of Judah. Most of the poor farmers will be left to work their land under Babylon, or the land will be given to those invaders. In the song, the oppressors cry, blaming God for injustice. Their blood money that they've made has been taken away from them, and the land that they stole has been taken away from them too. But notice that they still think it is owed to them. Verse 5 tells us this. Therefore, you will have none to cast the line by lot in the assembly of the Lord. Now, that, that line seems obscure, right? But it's the most potent judgment these wicked land barons have faced yet. Clans and tribes regularly got together to settle inheritance issues in a religious ritual where they would basically pull a piece of paper out of a hat, like what we would do today, by lot. They relied upon the Lord to provide a good allotment of historical family land. Okay, so think, think this through with me. The land means a lot. And you're, you're a dad who has three sons. You die, you have a certain amount of land, and it has to be divided up against the three. Uh, how do you decide how that's going to be done? Well, they set it up in Israel in such a way that God would decide. They would go to the temple and have it done. Okay, so that's what we're talking about here. That's why Psalm 16, 6, a much beloved verse, says, The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have received a beautiful inheritance. Familiar with that verse? We use it as a promise for ourselves, right? The psalmist is appropriating this ritual that the Israelites endured as a metaphor for God's blessing. But the oppressors in Judah... These wicked land barons who are seizing things that don't belong to them will receive no allotment. No one will stand for them in the assembly of the Lord. They will be cut off from the land and therefore cut off from the rest of the promises of Israel. In short, the oppressors no longer belong to the people of Israel. Through their covetousness and domination of their brothers, they've broken the covenant. Covetousness is a dangerous sin. And it gets more dangerous the more power we have to act on it. These people had unrestrained power to act upon their covetousness, like David taking Bathsheba for himself. But the desire of the eyes, as John calls it, deteriorates the soul. Covetousness is a black hole that is never satisfied. And that's true for the wealthy and the poor alike. But Micah 2 is more of a warning against those who have the power to satisfy their covetousness. Now, we all have power to satisfy covetousness in some way. So it's time to examine our hearts. Those who are in Christ are content with the gifts he has given him. They're content to live upright and quiet lives. But not much has changed in our world from the time of Micah. There are still those who have everything, and they still want 
more and more. There are those who make their millions and billions on the back of the vulnerable and less fortunate. You know, it's true that there are more slaves today than ever before in human history. There are roughly 28 million people enslaved just as forced laborers around the world. That's, a, that's just a portion of all the slaves in the world. And 24 million of those laborers are slaved, enslaved to private companies. All of this is to serve the profits of the companies they work for. So if we think that we are not in the time of Micah, we're wrong. What does Micah 2, 1 through 5, tell us about the oppressive crime of covetousness? First, it tells us that God sees the victims. Just as God heard the cry of the oppressed families in Judah, he sees the modern slave and the crimes perpetrated against them. And the God of justice will also bring judgment against those who exploit others for unjust gain, even today. Our God is a just God. Amen? Just as these land barons in ancient Judah weren't going to get away with their crimes, neither will modern enslavers and oppressors. They will receive justice from the Lord, either in this age or in the age to come. It also means that God's people should care, us, we should care about the oppression of the vulnerable at the hands of the covetous. Amen? We should seek to alleviate the suffering that we see around us to set the captives free with Christ, starting in our own community and extending to the rest of the world. These people are our neighbors. And it means that instead of falling victim to the mentality that we need to make more and more money and gain more and more things, by any means possible, we should prioritize loving people with the truth over wealth. This has real ramifications for how we run our businesses. Let me be clear, there's nothing wrong with having a successful business or being a part of a a successful company. But when covetousness runs rampant, people get hurt and abused. So let it never be said of us that we did not care about our fellow human beings made in the image of God. And to those who do own businesses or manage certain areas of company and people, we should seek to treat our employees and our co-workers well, better than the rest for the sake of the kingdom of God. We should let the law of love, the love of Jesus Christ, extend to every area of our lives, even in how we make money and the businesses we run. Amen? The second crime outlined in this chapter is the crime of rejecting God's word, verses 6 through 11. Micah doesn't leave the subject at hand in verse 6, but he does address a different sort of person. He turns his attention to the popular prophets in Jerusalem that opposed his message of woe. Verses 6 and 7 are the words against Micah from these prophets. 
Do not preach, thus they preach. One should not preach of such things. Disgrace will not overtake us. Should this be said, O house of Jacob, has the Lord grown impatient? Are these his deeds? Do not my words do good to to him who walks uprightly? The ESV has the quotation ending in verse 6, but commentators agree that the quotation likely extends to verse 7, and and I agree too. There's no quotation marks you'll remember in, in ancient Hebrew. So translators have to do their best. New to the scene are some false prophets who directly contradict Micah's pronouncement of God's judgment. Do not preach, thus they preach. One should not preach of such things. They'd like Micah to shut his mouth and go away, thank you very much. Instead of rightly looking at the situation in Judah and pronouncing the same judgment as Micah with the word of God in mind, these false prophets want nothing more than to win the hearts of the rich land barons that Micah is denouncing. In chapter 3, verse 5, we learn that that's the exact situation. These false prophets only tell the people of Jerusalem exactly what they want to hear because they put food in their mouths. They say that disgrace will not overtake Judah. They assure their congregations that God is super patient and wouldn't do anything like mean old Micah is saying he'd do, and that God would only give to them good things, and that God does only good for these nice people who never do anything wrong. But Micah doubles down. Look at verse 8. But lately, my people have risen up as an enemy This is a theme he'll develop in the next few verses. The people of God, represented by these oppressive leaders in Jerusalem, are more like God's enemy now than his people. In fact, they've risen up in opposition to God and his word. They would rather hear the nice words of the false prophets than confront their sin. And Micah says with the voice of the Lord... You strip the rich robe from those who pass by trustingly with no thought of war. The women of my people you drive out from their delightful homes. From their young children you take away my splendor forever. Here we find another list of sins these wicked leaders have committed. And it gets much more specific. The rich robe or the outer cloak that every man wore, the the cloak was a right of every person. It was their property. We talked about this a little bit in the Sermon on the Mount, you remember. But Exodus 22 guaranteed the outer cloak to every man, even if it was put up as a pledge for payment. It had to be returned to him that night. It has had a special significance as the dignity of every man. That's what it stood for. So this cloak, and therefore the dignity of every man, has been stripped and stolen from the people of Judah. They do this to innocent people who now have to worry about their own land as if they're under attack from a foreign enemy, but they're not waging war against anybody. Their own people have turned against them. Like refugees in their own land, the women are driven out of the homes that they love. That's the act of a heartless person. Micah intentionally uses language here to move our hearts. They're delightful homes. Even the children are deprived of the splendor of the Lord. Of course, the splendor 
The blessing of the Lord to every Israelite was the land of Israel itself. These leaders deprived the poor children of their inheritance. Verse 10 is an ironic turn of events. Arise and go, and for this is no place to rest, are probably some of the words that these wicked land barons used against their victims. But now God turns it onto the oppressors, and the enemies of God are given their marching orders. Arise and go, for this is no place to rest, because of uncleanness that destroys with a grievous destruction. The land of Israel in Deuteronomy 12 is called a place of rest. But it will no longer be a place of rest for the wicked landowner. Their oppression is uncleanness. And just like the Canaanites who were driven out of the land of Canaan by Israel because of their uncleanness, so will these wicked land leaders these land barons. The, the false prophets would have these evil leaders believe that they're doing nothing wrong. But Micah speaks against these false prophets by bringing specific crimes to the forefront here. Don't you see, you prophets of God, what these people are doing? And he's not done with the false prophets. If a man should go about an utter wind and lies, this is verse 11, saying, I will preach to you of wine and strong drink, he would be the preacher for this people. That's, that's quite the burn that Micah gives against these prophets. Micah's saying something that is still true today. People do not want to be confronted with their sin, especially if that sin is profitable Micah says that these people would rather have a preacher who tells them to keep the party going than to deal with the wickedness they've done. Even today, there are plenty of preachers who pander to their audiences and make a lot of money from it. They cater to the rich and the famous, and they tell them there's nothing wrong with their lives to just keep doing what they're doing. There are even preachers who pander to audiences that aren't wealthy but they manipulate their congregations into giving vast amounts of money on the false promise that their good works will get them into heaven or that their generosity guarantees their prosperity. There are preachers who say that any kind of sin is not really that bad, that God is really patient with you, that he doesn't really care about what you say or who you sleep with or what you identify as because he is a God of love. And they create an idol. God no longer becomes a God of love. He is, love is God. They wanted all the blessings, these people. They wanted all the blessings of the covenant God made with Israel without fulfilling any of the obligations of the covenant. They wanted a blind, grandfatherly type God who didn't care what they did as long as they went to the temple every once in a while and paid some money. That's not the God of the scriptures. And they should have known better. They had the law. God had revealed himself to them in his word. But they still wanted something different. They committed the crime of rejecting God's word for an idol they had built for themselves, convincing them that their idol 
was the one true God. And unfortunately, that still happens today. Instead of taking in the full counsel of God's word, many churches hire pastors who only tell them what they want to hear instead of what God wants them to hear. The only way to hear all of what God wants us to hear is by being willing to go to every part of the scripture and actually take it in, both corporately and individually. If these people in Jerusalem, these oppressive, powerful people, actually took the time to get to know the God that they said they loved, they would soon realize their sin. And the same is true for us. The closer that we get to the Lord by his word, the more you're in this, the more you realize God is not very much like you, and that you are very sinful. You do not live up to the call. Hebrews 4.12 tells us, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. We need to bring the sword to bear on our hearts every day. Because the intentions of our hearts can easily stray into idolatry and evil and covetousness and abuse, thinking little of people, hatred. The good news is that there is hope. If you are really in God's word, you would know that too. There's hope for the people of God. And so far, the book of Micah has been a bit of a downer. But like I mentioned, the book works in cycles. And in verses 12 through 13, we find third, the king of the remnant. I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob. I will gather the remnant of Israel. I will set them together like sheep in a fold, like a flock in its pasture, a noisy multitude of men. He who opens the breach goes up before them. They break through and pass the gate, going out by it. Their king passes on before them, the Lord at their head. The short pronouncement of hope comes as a cup of cool water after the scorching heat of God's judgment and wrath from chapter 1 until now. Verse 12 is a promise that God will gather the remnant of Israel. Here God is pictured as a shepherd whose sheep are scattered and that he brings back together into a fold, into a family. Chapter 1 ends with these words, For they shall go from you into exile. But these words in verse 12 is a promise that exile will not last forever. And true to his word, God did gather the nation of Israel back into the promised land after the deportation of the southern kingdom. The end of the verse here even hints that that the promise of God will make that remnant multiply once more into a noisy multitude of men. The small remnant maintained will grow into a nation once again. Praise the Lord. Verse 13 pictures God as a warring king who goes before his people into battle. It's a startling departure from the rest of the book of Micah so far, which has seen God act as 
a king against his people who are called his enemy, who wars against the oppressive wicked leaders. But now the king passes before the people in glory and leads them against their enemies. And that has direct fulfillment during the reign of Hezekiah. 2 Kings 19. Sennacherib, the general of the armies of Assyria, besieged the city of Jerusalem after he conquered the northern kingdom of Israel. He brought about 2,000 men, 200,000 men, to siege the city of Jerusalem, and it looked like all hope was lost. But Isaiah delivered an incredibly powerful prophecy against the Assyrians that God would turn them away from the land of Israel, from the land of Judah, from the city of Jerusalem. And so, just as Micah said, the Lord broke through the gate of Jerusalem and the angel of the Lord struck down 185,000 Assyrian soldiers that night. And Sennacherib, the great general, went home empty-handed, giving the victory to Judah. The God of justice is also the God of mercy. Just as God opened the breach against the enemies of Israel, so he opens the breach against our enemies. Satan doesn't stand a chance against the king of all creation who wars against the enemy of his people. And our sin has been conquered on the cross of Christ. Praise the Lord. Micah presents us the shepherd king. The shepherd king who gathers his people. And the ultimate fulfillment of this is in Jesus Christ, who is our shepherd king. Just as he gathered the remnant of Israel, so does he gather us together to make us one family before God. The idea of the remnant is incredibly powerful. There is always a people of God. We get to be a part of that now. God has always maintained his people. Do you belong? Are you a part of that people? Are you one of the sheep of the shepherd king? We get to proclaim the truth of the gospel this morning. The truth of the gospel is that Jesus Christ, the shepherd king, came to us, Emmanuel. He lived a perfect life, but he died on the cross as your substitute. And conquering sin and death, he rose from the grave so that you too can be victorious in him. Amen? Amen. We get to proclaim that truth together in communion. It's a time where we remember the death and resurrection of Christ for the forgiveness of sins. It's a holy meal that we partake of together to symbolize our unity as brothers and sisters in Christ, as members of the fold. And so it's for those members today, for those who believe in the gospel, we're going to ready our hearts to receive it. If you have not believed the gospel before, I, uh, I urge you not to take communion before that happens. If you have not placed your faith in Jesus Christ, do that now. 
Let's pray. Spend some time in prayer, personal reflection and response. Uh, Ushers, you can come forward. At Lake Morton Community Church, we take communion first as the bread together. It'll be passed out. You can receive that with us all together. Then we will pass out the cup. You can take that by yourself or you can take it with me. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much now for the opportunity to receive your body and your blood. Lord, we remember what you did for us on the cross. We proclaim your death now and we eagerly await your second coming. In Jesus' name, amen.